welcome to episode 71 of the Masterclass. My name is Cam, and I'm with Dave yet again. Good evening. Or whatever time it is for you all. Yes, yes. <laughs> Dear, uh, happy time agnostic greeting. Yes. I'm a little bit partial to 71. That was the year I was born. So, anytime I see a 71, just... It warms my heart. Warms yes. your heart. Yep. I I don't have any significant connections. Connections with number seventy one. Sorry. Sorry. I've ne- I've I've not been alive during a year with a seventy one in it. <laughs> and if I if, if I are? make it to the to the next seventy one, I will be an old man, very old man, like eighty five. Which is almost the year I was born. Not quite. Interestingly enough, I'm not listed in the most popular people. <laughs> really? That what a shame. Who beat you? Sad. <laughs> Who beat you to make that list? You know, I, I'm embarrassed to say that I don't really like like nobody. It's like what? Well, hey, so there's still a chance, is what you're saying. Yeah, I guess. Uh, do you know that? Uh, Jeff Gordon, NASCAR. Winona Ryder. Mm. Mark Wahlberg. Really? I'm the same age as Marky Mark. Well, what's funny is, if anyone ever compares me to a celebrity, it's Mark Wahlberg. Oh, really? Which oh, I don't... I see it now that you say it. That's funny. See, I don't see it. <laughs> uh, I mean, clearly we're both very muscular, handsome men. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. But, yeah, that's it's always the one that I get. And, I mean... I. It could be worse. They could say Will Ferrell. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I just never really quite understood the connection, but apparently people see it. I, I'm i always amazed at the people that are the same age as me. Um, and this is one of the guys that is John Hamm from Mad Men. Yeah, John Hamm, yeah, yeah. He seems so much older than me. Like, so much more mature, so much Well, older. I think the fact that he was Don Draper for, like, seven right. years helps. But then people like Corey Feldman. Really? Yeah. Okay, that's that's crazy to me that Corey Feldman and John Hamm are the same age. Yeah. As Eric Stone Street from... Okay, I can see that. Eric Stone Street went to K-State. He did. So I'm on a... I guess primarily actors. So, yeah, I'm looking at the uh, the most famous people, most famous actors born in 1986. Uh, Amelia Clark, who plays Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones, same age as me. I see that. And then there's a bunch of people that I don't really know. Uh, hmm. Kit Harrington, Jon Snow, on Game of Thrones. Oh, yes, the always popular Lindsay Lohan. Yes. Snoop Dogg, 1971. Sno- really? You and Snoop just hanging out. Poor shizzle. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, we need to move on. Alright. <laughs> we're not doing silly show titles anymore, but if we were, it oh, would be that. Marco Rubio. You know it's a fun game to play instead of Marco Polo? Marco, Marco Rubio. Rubio. Be in the grocery store. Marco! Rubio. Rubio! 
Kid Rock. He seems older. I would have I would have thought that he was older than you. I think it's just all of the <clears throat> rock and roll lifestyle has made him a little rough. Yeah. Tech Nine from Kansas City. Tech Nine's from Kansas City. Oh yeah. I didn't know that. Yep, he he plays in Lawrence quite a bit. And it's really kind of funny. Yeah, he's from Casey Moe. And he he plays in Lawrence a lot. And everybody always expects everything to go to heck when he comes to town. Yeah, well. And Ooh. I will I will honestly say they're he has a very well, generally has a pretty well behaved group that comes to his concerts. Oh, you know who else was born in nineteen eighty six? Usain Bolt. Fastest uh, man ever. And the Olsen twins. <laughs> this is kind of a weird list of people. I'm I'm also not on this list. Shia LaBeouf. Yikes. Marshawn Lynch. Get some Skittles. Beast mode. <laughs> Well, that was fun. We should move on. Sure. What a weird list of people. Anyways. Yeah, and it's just odd. Like you said, there's just some people don't seem like they would be the same age as other people in their group. Oh, okay. Here's my last one. Drumroll. Born in South Africa. Born in South Africa. Multi-millionaire. Charlie's Theron. He has two he... major companies. Oh, Elon Musk. <laughs> Heck yes. Really? Yeah. You're the same age as he... I... Okay. Interesting. I'm such a failure. <laughs> I don't own two multi-billion dollar Yeah, companies. you're not doubling the world's battery production in one year. Hmm. Or sending people into space. Well, they haven't sent people yet. Ooh. So you're saying there's a chance. Yep, there's a chance, <laughs> yes. That you can somehow, from nothing, build a space rocket faster than SpaceX can, yes. Um, it still blows my mind that they can land a rocket. Quite impressive. It's insane. Yes. I did a whole All Things Neat episode on SpaceX. I'll put that in the show notes. You should. Because there's a link in that show to the live feed of when they landed the first rocket. And they, it's, it's almost like what I would, it's like Jesus came back. Like the, the <laughs> level of excitement and just pure, like unadulterated, just giddiness of when they landed. It's insane. Well, like, I got emotional watching. Yeah. Because you can tell there's like, it's like stress, 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 stress. And then just pure relation. Like, yeah. Oh my God. We just land <laughs> like in every, they got there and people are just like chest bumping and like hugging and going nuts. It's super cool. It's like, it's a really long thing, the video, but I think in that show, in the show notes for that, I have, if you just want to watch the rocket, it's this timestamp. Um, so I'll, I'll be sure to link to my SpaceX uh, podcast episode, because they're doing some crazy stuff. Yep. Crazy, crazy stuff. What, uh, but this is the master class. <laughs> welcome back. Yeah, welcome back from our little uh, 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 side tangent there. Uh, last episode was all follow-up, and we were like, oh, we'll get done in like 20 or 30 minutes. We're just going to do a short show, 45 minutes, like 
we just can't do a show shorter than 45 minutes. Um, and I don't think this one will be shorter than 45 either. Because we are going to spend the entire episode talking about the next chunk of Matthew. And that is Matthew 21, 12 through 17. Sir, would you care to read yes. the word of the Lord? And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, my computer's not scrolling, you have prepared praise. And then verse 17, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Thank you, sir. Your scroll, your trackpad's not working? Well, I don't know what I was doing. It is. I don't know (laughs) that I was, maybe I just wouldn't clicked on the page as well. Well, all right. Thank you for reading. All right. So Jesus goes to the temple and drove out all who sold and bought there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. This is always something that I've wanted to see. Like, ever since I was a little kid. It's like, I want to see what this looks like. Because he probably looks like a madman. There's there's no, like, normal, sane way to flip over a table and drive a whole herd of people out. Because it's not just the sellers, it's the sellers and the buyers. So it's the people there that are selling and everyone that's come to buy the pigeons to make the sacrifices. And I kind of almost picture it as, like, a like a normal market that's just, like, the temple market. It's only, like, temple things that you can mm-hmm. buy. And, uh... You know, I, I kind of picture, like, a river market here in Kansas City of just a dude walking down and just flipping over all the farmer stands and driving everybody out and hooping and hollering and yelling at people. And I think it would just be incredible to see. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so long as I knew that it was Jesus and not a crazed person who wanted to hurt people. Yes. Which is what they probably thought of him. He was when Jesus was doing it. Yeah. So, you know, aside from the sheer cinematic value of seeing something like this, what is really going on here? Why is he? Why is he upset to the point that this is the right thing to do? Because I feel like there's a lot of ground in between being calm and flipping tables over and throwing people out of the temple. Like, there's a lot of room in there, I think, for different options. Well, and especially considering we had never seen this before. I mean, I don't believe up to this point in Matthew, we've really seen Jesus do anything this dramatic or extreme. Yeah, no, definitely not this um, potentially violent. And I'm sure that well, I'm not going to say that, but yeah, no, we've we've seen Jesus get um, upset. We've seen him be very, very blunt 
with the Pharisees, but we've never seen him be this proactively physical. His, usually his physicality is, and he retreated, and he got in a boat and left. He, much like at the end of this verse, and leaving them, he went to the city. Like Usually whenever we hear him doing anything physical, it's either he's healing somebody or he's traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this seems, and, and it's just so nonchalant. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. Like it just, it's, it's just in the flow of the story this happens. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's part of what fascinates me about it. But the other part is too, is like Jesus is, you know, the perfect guy and he's sinless and he's the nice guy. He does the good things, but this doesn't seem like something that a good Christian would do. Yeah. And so I'm just trying to, I guess in a roundabout way, ask you that question of why is it okay, why was this okay for him to do? Or was it? Let's start there. Um, Let's not make any assumptions. Well, I'm actually going to go a little bit different. I hope you'll forgive me. Um, I kind of have to, Dave. One of, well, yeah, <laughs> we talked about that already. Okay, so one of my hang-ups with this is Jesus has made it very, well, Jesus made it very clear. What a horrible thing to say. Looking back on Scripture and knowing what we know now, uh, Jesus says that his body is the temple. He's going to tear it down. He's going to build it up three days later. And so there's there's this element for me of... Um, the the temple where Jesus is is where the Holy of Holies is. Um, not to get too far down the road, this but there's there's different places, and the place that he's at is like the most public place that pretty much anybody could be in there. And as you move inwardly, it becomes more restrictive as to who can be where, to the point with the Holy of Holies being the innermost place, and only a. Uh, is it the house of Levi that can go in there? House of... The Levites, yeah. Is it Levi, or I feel like it's at somebody else? Aaron? No, what, I don't know. I'm embarrassed. I the don't Levites remember. were the priests. Okay, so... Uh, and they would send the guy in there once a year with a right. rope tied around his waist, just in case he died. Yeah. Because so like, he was unfit to be in the presence of God. Yeah, and, and literally, like, this curtain is, like, 12 inches thick. I mean, it's this heavy, heavy, thick curtain. When Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain is torn... The Holy of Holies is no longer this tiny little closet in the temple, but the Holy, it's everywhere. It's us. And so my hang-up is, is Jesus clearly came to, like the temple doesn't play a role anymore in, in all of this because he is the temple. And so I kind of come from, come from the standpoint of why does he get so worked up over something that's like, going to become obsolete in a couple of months and you know I, I i don't get why this is the thing that seems to be uh where we see him become almost the most passionate and so uh do i do i believe that his um response is appropriate absolutely um partly i'm going to default to the well he's jesus and he gets the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he gets the benefit of the doubt. Um, but two, there is there is clearly something going on here that has has struck a chord of just the most um, 
this is not about him. This is truly about the father and about the father being disgraced, the, the father being dishonored. And uh, I'm just, I'm amazed at how consumed he is by that because um, he didn't seem to have an issue with, um, you know, the Pharisees and the way that they would do things and them constantly playing this game of trying to catch him into things. But here seems like something, to me on the surface, very benign. Um, that has set him over the edge. So, well, I'm going to disagree with you a little okay. bit. Mark this episode. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's benign. Well, it's, I, yeah. I think that even to your point, even though he knows that in a short amount of time, this is going to be obsolete because of what's going to happen. To me, Jesus is never going to say, well, in a few months, it's going to change, so I'm just going to let this sin continue on. I'm going to let this uh, disrespect or misrepresentation of the truth continue, even though in a few months, I'm going to do something that obliterates it. Um, I think that this is also probably at a culminating point for him, where he has traveled the area, he has seen the people, he's interacted with the Pharisees and the Sadducees multiple times, he's seen the fallen nature of the people, and he gets to the the main temple, the temple in Jerusalem, and what is supposed to be God's home for his people, or with his people, is something that is so disgraceful and unwhat God wanted that I feel like he can't but help to do this because he's so upset by what he sees and um you know whether it's you know there for you know two months or two thousand years i think his reaction is the same because he realizes these they don't get it mm -hmm. like this is, he says this is supposed to be a house of prayer but you turn it into a house of robbers and so <clears throat> um i kind of you know like if i'm gonna try and interpret that, you know, for modern churches. I, I often look at, at big churches and what they spend their money on. I agree. And is that use of that much money really what God would want? Or would Jesus come into your church and take all your fancy HDTVs and throw them on the ground? You know, I know uh, I was talking to a coworker at the coffee shop, and he goes to a really large church in the area, and they spent last year $850,000 on monitors. $850,000 on new TVs for the entire facility. That's a lot of freaking money for screens. And there were a lot of people in the church that were upset about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of people that were saying you could have spent that much money over the next, you know, eight and a half years and given $100,000 a year to support missionaries all over the planet. And how far does $100,000 go in India and Africa and China? Mm -hmm. Where the exchange rate is totally in our favor. And so I, I have those thoughts when I when I see this passage of Jesus. He Yeah, he's going to blow this up in a few months, but... A, he's going to defend the truth any chance he gets, and two, he knows the long-term ramifications 
of misrepresenting the truth. Mm -hmm. And so I think he reacts this way because he does see the long-term effects of what it, uh, of what happens when God's truth is replaced with business. Yes. Um, so I often wonder about the coffee shops that churches have. Um, like you said, uh, the money that is spent on different things in the church and the sanctuary and I'm looking for it right now and I can't find it but I was going to see your 800,000 on monitors and raise you <laughs> but I'm speaking out of ignorance so I can't find exactly what it is I'm looking for here there's a church in the Kansas City area that spent an ungodly amount on a stained glass window. Yep. And I can't, I can't remember. They're, well, they're building an entire new ninety million dollars for the project. Yeah, it's this giant sanctuary building that looks like a UFO. Mm -hmm. With I think it's like a three and a half story stained glass window. Yeah. Maybe even four. Um. But I can't remember how much the window actually costs. That's probably not fair for me to pick on them about that. But it was a significant amount of money on the old stained glass window there that he, they felt fairly confident about what they were doing and that they would be able to answer the Lord for that. But I guess in I guess in short, I hear I hear your point in terms of what modern churches spend their money on. I found the, the total. The window will cost approximately one thousand dollars per square foot to fabricate and install, including a stru structural support and framing. For a total cost of three point two million dollars for the window. Which apparently is to honor God, so I hope God feels honored by that. $3.2 million. It's a pretty window if you like stained glass, but I just, I don't, I don't know what that communicates to the families that drive by that building that are struggling to pay their bills. Mm -hmm. not, and not just that church, any of the larger churches in the area that have massive buildings and massive infrastructure and massive staffing, you know, and, and I honestly, I don't know a lot about that church other than kind of what the cultural opinion of them is. I've been in the building once, but my, my, my biggest question about, when churches spend that much money on things that to me seem silly. My concern is more for what does that communicate to the people in your community about where your um, uh, emphasis lies. And for all I know, they could be great at outreach. 
I don't know. I don't live in that part of town. Um, but my thought is, is if you're spending $3.2 million on a stained glass window, you better be spending 10 times that on outreach and missions. But that's just my personal. There's no nothing in the Bible that says that <laughs> thou shalt spend tenfold on you know missions as thou dost on interior decorating. Yeah, and I I will say that I think they they do do that. I do think they're very good about and would even say that of you know anybody driving by that's in need, come on in. But how inviting. Is that really exactly what what person who's struggling to make ends meet is going to show up at a church like that and say, "Can I have some help?" Yeah. So I realize part of that is perception, and that's you know not really um, what what this is about for Jesus. This is for him. This is about representing the truth accurately and representing what the temple is supposed to be about accurately, and. All I'm trying to say, and, and I, you know, if I haven't made this clear, I apologize. The church should communicate to the people that live in that community that we are here for you. Mm-hmm. Everything about that church, the building and the people that comprise it, should make it clear to the surrounding neighborhood that you are welcome here. Mm-hmm. We are here to help bring truth and life and light to this community. And if anything about the church building itself or the church people themselves does not communicate that, then I think there's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm trying to say. I think that's fair. I, I hope it is. And <laughs> if I'm wrong, let me know. But Sure. I just think that people have enough hurdles to jump over before they decide they want to walk into a church. I think the the most the church can do to prevent those hurdles from being there, the better. Because what are churches there for? They're there for people that need Jesus. Mm-hmm. And if the church can do as much as possible to remove those hurdles to get people into the church to hear the gospel, the better. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean you don't spend money on TV so that newcomers can understand the words of the songs. You probably need a few, but does that mean that you need to spend (laughs) $850,000? I don't know. I, I would sure hope not. I feel like there's a happy medium there between letting the people feel welcome and understand how the community goes and then being excessive. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I don't go to that church and, and I don't know what the reasoning behind it was. I just have to think that God is more concerned with the salvation of people than he is with the representation of your church picnic graphics. And I make websites for a living, so I'm all about pretty graphics and functionality, right? Like, I appreciate that. But there comes a point where 
it's about people and it's about truth and it's not about polish and being pretty. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, as we're talking about this, I even just think about some of the the committees that I was part of um, when I was on staff at a church. And I literally remember, and yes, literally, remember a three-hour meeting about what carpet was going to go in the fellowship hall. And people just getting passionately upset with each other because they couldn't agree on what needed to be done in there. It's all about the Berber, Dave. Yes. And then I remember having conversations about where bulletin boards should and should not be hung in the church. And again, it was absolutely dumbfounding. Dumbfounding? Dumbfounding? Is that what I wanted to say? I I just couldn't believe how passionate people could get over those kinds of things and the amount of time that could be spent on those. And the other thing I will say is that in those two particular conversations, the carpet and the bulletin report, I don't remember anybody ever even making an effort to go, and this is why it will glorify God, this is why it will advance the kingdom. You know, it wasn't even like people could say, I'm arguing this for the kingdom. It was, this is my opinion, and my opinion is right. Uh-huh. And this is why you need to listen to me. So... All right, so let's move on. Um, verse 13, he says, uh, he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. What does uh, the term a house of prayer mean to you? Give me your opinion, Dave. I don't want to hear about the kingdom or the advance. I just want to hear your opinion and why it's right. Of why what is right? Of what I was trying to be funny, and I, I, oh, I think I sorry. failed. <laughs> no, uh, I know that I failed, actually. Um, I'm laughing. You're at me, I know. Thank you. In your general direction. Yeah. <laughs> we already have one. Go away. Um, my house shall be called a house of prayer. What does that mean to you? A house of prayer. Um, it, it's really about people coming and experiencing God. It's about people coming... Um, and finding God, it's coming and hearing from God, it's coming and being heard by God. Um, A house of prayer to me is, um, and I know I'm looking at this back in hindsight, but it's about a relationship with the Creator, about a relationship with our God. And... I, I, this, I, I'm still wrestling with this. I still, I still don't totally get Jesus' passion in this. Like, I, I, I can't completely wrap my head around it because I can think of all these reasons why he should have gotten worked up about other things and not this. And so I, I have not totally landed on a, this is, like, like I have a strong, like, okay, I can get why he's doing this. Um, but, yeah, there's definitely this sense of um, people coming out of obligation, people coming out of meeting a requirement that there 
this this relationship that God has desired for us to have has just been totally removed. And I think it was a Timothy Keller book that I heard him say that like some 255,000 um, sacrifices would have been made at the temple in a year. And just thinking about the doves, the whatever that are represented by that, that's a lot of money exchanging hands. And so, yeah, House of Prayer to me is really just about this um, coming to a place and expecting to experience God in a very real way and not coming out of a sense of obligation. I would agree. It's about that. A conversation, the, the coming together and going there for one purpose, to be with God, for sure. Um, all right. 14 says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So after he cleared house and made a huge scene, people were like, All right, let's go see who this guy is, which is interesting. I feel like most people would have just, you know, fled for, uh, you know, terror. But, um... Apparently, he was still able to stay in the temple after cleaning house. Uh, and he healed the blind and the lame. Uh, and then when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So, the people who Jesus most likely offended deeply by his actions see how the crowds react to him and get indignant. What is what does indignant mean? I, to to me, indignant is just that disgust, just absolute um, can't can't even deal with what it is that they're seeing. And um, again, I'm I'm just reminded as we're as we're talking tonight and we're doing this of just how. Jesus came and just turned everything upside down, you know, just set the world uh, in a completely different direction than what everybody had been anticipating. And, I, you know, the other thing is, is it, 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 there's kind of even this element of, there's not very many people that can come in and cause the kind of scene that Jesus caused and then sort of have this like redemptive moment and people being drawn to him and flocked to him. And uh, this was, I didn't say it earlier, but this was in the back of my mind is one of the things that like when you were asking, uh, was it okay for Jesus to do this? Was it good? And it's like, well, yeah, who else could have done what he did in terms of cause this huge scene? And then I have this like peaceful divine moment afterwards uh, it's just not there's something more going on there you know so so after the uh, chief priests and scribes get indignant and they get annoyed that these people have responded positively to Jesus's uh, flipping of the tables they say to Jesus do you hear what they're saying? Mm -hmm. This uh, Hosanna is the son of David. And he says to them, yes. 
have you never read that out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? <laughs> like, he always has a response. Always. Mm-hmm. And, like, I always have responses, too, but generally they're bad puns. Not, you know, <laughs> wisdom from the Bible. Yes. Uh, but I like that... The reason I like this the most is because he knows that these are chief priests and scribes. They know the scriptures backwards and forwards. If not in their hearts, definitely in their minds. These are well-trained scholarly people when it comes to the content of the scriptures. And so he replies to them, Oh, have you never read? Yeah, that... Which is just, like, gotta be the biggest, like, gut punch. Well, of course I've read it. I'm a... You know? It'd be like... I don't know. I'm trying to think of a metaphor, and they're all terrible. But, you know, going to anyone who's a professional, an expert in their profession, and asking them, well, didn't you know the most simple, basic thing about your profession? Mm-hmm. Um, as a preface to the question, well, yeah, have you never read this? Of course they've read it. That's the whole point. And he's putting them in their place by saying it that way. And I just love it. It's very, I wish I could say that and not be a jerk about it, you know, because I feel like if I was going to say that to someone, it would be for the sole purpose of making them feel stupid, mm-hmm. not for, <laughs> not for educating them or convicting them or uh, teaching them. Um, it would be for the sole purpose of making them feel stupid. Yep. And me just kind of patting myself on the back like, yep, got them real good. <laughs> uh, but Jesus, he's not trying to make them look or feel stupid. He's trying to convict them of their indignancy in that situation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're calling me what I am, and here's why. Mm-hmm. You know this. Put, let me help you put two and two together here. And sometimes I just wish that he would have sat them down and been like, okay, guys, you know the scriptures, let's put this together. But he, he doesn't really ever do that. He just kind of... I think he relies... How do I want to say this? I think it kind of falls into the, you know, those that have much, much will be expected. Yep. He doesn't give them the... ABCs of who he is because if anyone should know who he is it should be them. They're the ones that have the most knowledge. And so I feel like he is tough on them because they should be the ones that know and they're the ones that are giving him the most grief. And all of these people that don't know the scriptures nearly as well are the ones that are clamoring because they see what's obviously in front of them. Mm. And the people that know what the scriptures say backwards and forwards are too uh, upset too offended to uh, unwilling to see what's right in front of their face. And so he gives it right back to them. And I just, I find that inter- interchange very, very interesting. Yeah. That the the blind and lame, the, the less than in society, can see, obviously, who he is, and that the people that should know the best refuse to see it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot in there about human nature. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And how, you know, those who have perceived the world versus those that, that don't have. 
Yeah. Um, I, I think it was Timothy Keller again. I've been reading him a lot, so if I'm misattributing things to him, of just. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was him. The reference book of Mark. But uh, we're just talking about. Christianity dies out where there's affluence. And well, who needs God when you can provide everything you need? Right. And and you know, the center of the church has has moved around, you know. Um it was in Rome, it was in Europe, it's been in America and uh, basically this book that I was listening to was talking about that majority of Christians actually live in the Southern Hemisphere now. It's totally in, shifted, yeah. In Africa and South America. And, um, yeah, it's just that, that element of, um, I don't know, dependence on him and needing him. And like you, like you were saying, just the... I don't even know if it's fair to say it, but the lowliest of people needing, you know, needing him, finding him, being able to see him, and those of us who have so much, um, you know, talks about the the camel going through the eye of the needle, and it's really not feasible. Happens every day. Yeah, it's not just some metaphor that you can explain away. It's truly a, um, but again. As Jesus was coming, this was going on, being rich and being successful was equated to God is blessing you. And really, God just turns that and says that's not the case anymore. And I don't know, I must confess, I'm, I, I, I'm a little just, um, kind of came into this with one thought. And as we've been here tonight, and we've been thinking about this. Uh, I just, I, I don't think I completely understand why he did what he did in this. And this will definitely be something that, just in my time with him over the next week or two, well, however long, uh, I'm going to continue to wrestle with. Because I just, I, I don't think I've ever really thought about, why is this the thing that sets him off? And... I'm having a hard time just getting past that tonight, so okay. I apologize if I'm somewhat distracted. It's all good. All right, well, that leads us up to the very last verse. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Yes. There's not much. I just wanted to read it again for closure's sake. I don't really think there's anything terribly theological about that last one. No, I think somewhere at some time I, I came across something that said that... Uh, Basically, the implication is is he stayed all day, uh, probably in an event that was never intended to be that way. Uh, again, went to the temple, kind of saw what he saw, responded to what he saw, but then it became this greater sort of sense of um, people coming to him, him ministering to people, uh, people experiencing the new temple in the old temple before all that's actually transpired and um, that he ended up being there uh, later than he intended to be 
And so they talk about him staying in Bethany because it would have either been a short distance or a relatively logical place to stay the night if you had ended up sticking around yeah. longer than you had originally intended. Which even in that, I, I find myself going, okay, did that ever really happen to Jesus? Like, did he know that he was going to stick around all day? Or was it truly a, wow, it's now dark and there's people still here and i got to figure out where I'm going to sleep tonight. And... Yeah, it reminds me of that line from uh, Lord of the Rings when uh, Frodo tells uh, Gandalf that he's late and Gandalf says, a wizard is never late. He, yes. re- he always arrives precisely on time. Precisely on time. <laughs> But, all right, well, I think that brings us to the end of this week's episode, Dave. Episode mm-hmm. 71. Yes. If uh, our listeners want to check out the show notes, you can go to supermegacorp.net slash masterclass slash 71. Or if you're listening to this podcast on your phone, most likely you can just scroll down and they will be right below the artwork uh, uh, for the show. You can get in touch with Dave on Twitter at 108HBO, where 8 is the only number. And you can get me on Twitter at Cam Brennan if you prefer to email us. You can do that as well. We want to make sure you have every possible way to contact us, except for giving you our personal numbers, because that's just not going to happen. Um, <laughs> that sounded rather like harsh. That, that came out wrong. Uh, but you can email us, uh, hello at supermegacorp.net, and we will get that email. So if you have um, comments or thoughts on this week's episode, let us know. We uh, we spent all last episode covering follow-up from listeners yes. so we uh we'd love to know what you uh think if um you agree if you disagree if you have thoughts that we haven't even considered because just because we have the microphones doesn't mean that we're always right uh, and we would love to learn um from you guys so um get in touch if you want we'd love to hear from you and we'll be back next time bye bye